This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are pleased to note that in segment two, we're going to have a talk with C.C. Goldwater. Her documentary, Mr. Conservative, Goldwater on Goldwater, is about as good a political documentary as we think you're going to find anywhere. We agree wholeheartedly with The Week magazine, which described it as both a fascinating political biography and a fond reminiscence of her grandfather, Barry Goldwater, whose blunt conservatism may have cost him the 64 presidential election, but paved the way for Ronald Reagan and the dominance of the right today. Looking back at Senator Goldwater with a perspective of years, it's clear that he had quite a bit of libertarianism in him. For example, he deplored the rise of the religious right and defended abortion rights and gays in the military. He's a rather singular figure in American political history, and we look very forward to speaking about him in segment two. Let us begin the program as we like to do with Today in History. On this date in history, which is January 25th in 1533, King Henry VIII of England married Anne Boleyn, despite Pope Clement VII's refusal to annul his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Later, Henry disavowed the Pope's authority and declared himself head of the Church of England, which is known elsewhere as the Anglican Church and here in the United States as the Episcopal Church leading some to call Anglicans slash Episcopalians Catholics without a Pope. On January 25, 1890, news reporter Elizabeth Cameron, also known as Nellie Bly, made it around the world in 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, beating the fictional journey in Jules Verne's story around the world in 80 days. On this date in 1981, Jiang Qing, the widow of Chinese leader Mao Zedong, was sentenced to death for her counter-revolutionary crimes during the Cultural Revolution. Two years later, the Chinese government commuted her sentence to life, which ended in 1991 when she died in prison an apparent suicide. And finally, on January 25, 1995, Russia comes close to launching nuclear missiles when its early warning radar detected a missile launched near Norway, apparently headed for Moscow. Norway had notified Russia of the planned scientific launch, but the Russian Defense Ministry failed to pass the information to radar personnel. And although it would be nice to imagine that such a thing could not happen today, in fact, Russia and America, the former Cold War adversaries, still have about 2,500 missiles, atomic warhead-tipped missiles pointed at one another, ready to launch at a moment's notice. This doesn't make a great deal of sense since the Cold War was canceled a while back. But given the usual bureaucratic inertia in both nations, we just, just haven't gotten around to having those missiles stand down. Someone needs to get around to tackling this problem one of these days. Our quote of the day comes from America's first president, George Washington. And yeah, we've used it before, but it's so good, we're using it again. Government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. 
Our quip of the day comes from Emo Phillips, who said, A computer once beat me at chess, but it was no match for me at kickboxing. Our statistic of the day comes from the Gallup Poll Organization, which, according to a rare independent poll of Cubans on the island, noted that 47% of Cubans say they support the Castro regime, while 40% don't. According to data leaked by um, Castro's Spanish physicians who attended to him, he almost certainly does not have long to live. And one item worthy of mention that's part statistic, part quote, we have the following. The thing is to stop wasting 120 million tons of sediment each year. Quote from Denise Reed of the University of New Orleans on the recommendation by scientists that the muddy Mississippi be diverted away from the Gulf of Mexico toward the sediment-starved marshes of Louisiana. We're puzzled by how, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, it was universally agreed that unless we get some sediment back into those marshes, New Orleans is doomed. And yet, uh, after having that been expressed again and again, no one seems to be doing much about it. Our joke of the day is as follows. A man was driving around and spotted a sign in front of a house saying, Talking Dog for Sale. He rang the bell, and the owner told him, The dog's in the back. Check him out. Guy goes in the back, spots a Labrador retriever. You talk? he asks. Yeah, said the lab. What's your story? asked the man. Lab says, I discovered I could talk as a pup. The CIA heard about me and sent me up in embassies all over the world. No one figured a dog could eavesdrop, so I was a valuable spy. Then they had me sit in rooms where world leaders met. That was also useful. So, how'd you wind up here? Oh, the jetting around was tiring, so I came here, worked airport security, uncovered some smugglers, won a few medals, and retired. The guy's astounded. He goes back in and asks the owner how much he wants for the dog. Forty bucks. Forty bucks, asked the guy. Why so cheap? The owner leans in. Listen, he never did half that stuff. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Last week was a good week for actual Mexican law enforcement when Mexican President Felipe Calderon dispatched 3,300 federal troops to Tijuana, wherein federal agents ordered the Tijuana police force to turn over their weapons in connection with murder investigations. Federal authorities had long suspected that some local police had been selling their guns to the powerful Ariano Felix drug cartel. It was conversely a bad week for Hindus last week after Hindu holy men threatened to boycott a massive purification ceremony in the Ganges, noting that it was too filthy to bathe in. Indian health officials acknowledging that levels of some pollutants are thousands of times the acceptable amount opened a dam to pump fresh water into the Ganges near the immersion site. The dilution apparently didn't help much. Said a Riverside innkeeper, M.P. Sahi, until people learn not to throw corpses in the river or empty their rubbish there and factories stop their pollution, nothing will change. 
And finally, last week appears to have been a pretty ugly week for American jurisprudence when in Detroit, Michigan, in a ruling sure to make philandering spouses squirm, Michigan's second highest court said that anyone involved in an extramarital fling could be prosecuted for first-degree criminal sexual conduct, a felony punishable by up to life in prison. And no, we are not making this up. Said the Court of Appeals, we cannot help but question whether the legislature actually intended the result we reach here today, but we are curtailed by the language of the statute from reaching any other conclusion. Now, we are not lawyers, but we wonder why it is the appeals court can't throw something out on the grounds of it being incredibly stupid. But it appears that the law is going to stand until the legislature may or may not fix it. And in the meantime, if you're contemplating any sort of fling in the state of Michigan, we recommend you exercise a great deal of caution. Let's uh, talk about a few other legal matters, shall we? About the time the president was doing his State of the Union address yesterday, Newsweek was reporting the following. Under the headline of Scapegoat, Scooter's Stunning Defense, subtitled A Bombshell Detonates on Day One of the Libby Perjury Trial, as Cheney's longtime aide points the finger at Karl Rove. Noted the text, it was the last thing the White House needed at a time when President Bush is already on the defensive over Iraq a circular firing squad in a federal courtroom in which the president's men and Vice President Dick Cheney's are all shooting at each other. That's how the perjury trial of I. Lewis Scooter Libby, Cheney's former chief of staff, began. Libby's long-awaited defense was laid out for the first time Tuesday in an opening statement, and it turned out to be a stunner, a scorched-earth strategy in which his main defense lawyer, pointed accusatory fingers at Deputy White House Chief of Staff Karl Rove, as well as other top current and former Bush aides. Almost no legal experts had expected this plan of attack in the trial. That, ladies and gentlemen, is some pretty interesting stuff, and it was kind of pushed off page one by the State of the Union address. And in what we find to be a curious juxtaposition, the following item came out at almost the same time. Dateline, Miami, Florida. E. Howard Hunt, who helped organize the Watergate break-in leading to the greatest scandal in American political history and the downfall of Richard Nixon's presidency, died Tuesday. He was 88. E. Howard Hunt was many things. A soldier in World War II, he joined the CIA after the war and later organized both a successful coup in Guatemala in 1954 and was instrumental in the botched Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961. Hunt authored more than 80 books, many of the spy genre, but uh, the bulk of his notoriety came from one thing he always insisted he wasn't, a Watergate burglar. Hunt often said he preferred the term Watergate conspirator. Hunt told the Miami Herald in 1997, I will always be called a Watergate burglar, even though I was never in the damn place. Now I have to make the best of it. By way of brief review, E. Howard Hunt, formerly of the CIA, and G. Gordon Liddy, formerly of the FBI, directed the Plumbers Unit, which broke in to the Watergate one night in June of 1972, apparently to plant bugs. 
Howard Hunt was working for the White House as a, quote, political consultant, unquote. In the wake of the burglary, one of the burglars was found to have his White House phone number in his possession. Though the burglary took place in June of 1972, it did not affect the November election. And it wasn't until March of 1973 when James McCord, one of the burglars, formerly of the CIA, wrote a letter to a federal judge claiming perjury had occurred in their testimony and that there was political pressure applied to the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent. James McCord had made it clear he wasn't going to be the scapegoat, and apparently E. Howard Hunt didn't want to be either. In a secretly recorded conversation in that same month that later became one of the key pieces of evidence of the White House cover-up, White House counsel John Dean told Nixon, we're being blackmailed. Hunt is now demanding another $72,000 for his own personal expenses, another $50,000 to pay his attorney's fees. Are there parallels here between Watergate burglars deciding they weren't going to take the fall for Nixon back in 73 and Ice Scooter Libby deciding he's gonna, not going to take the fall for Karl Rove in 2007? Well, time will tell. We should also take a moment to remind you that we did speak with John Dean on this program and that we'd recommend uh, our interview with him to you at our website, radioparallax.com. In uh, other news relating to Radio Parallax former guests, we note that uh, award-winning B columnist R.E. Grasswich has accepted a buyout offer from the McClatchy Company and has quit. Said R.E. in his last column, It's ending because the time is right. The newspaper trade is changing. The way people share information is changing. The B is changing. Why not change with them? Why not start a business and find new ways to share information? I slide into the new challenge, helping organizations communicate, inspired by lessons from an ancient craft. And finally, we would refer you to our former guest, Mark Anderson's article in New Scientist magazine on January 7th, 2007, about how if NASA wants to send a spacecraft out into interstellar space, it needs to get moving quickly to take advantage of a favorable alignment between Earth and the planet Jupiter. We didn't talk to Mark about uh, science topics. He spoke with us about the authorship question regarding William Shakespeare, but uh, he is going to come back in April, at which time we're going to talk about some science stuff as well. All right, let's take a short break, after which we will come back and speak to C.C. Goldwater about her grandfather, former Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who changed the face of American politics. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.
We've been talking about having our next guest on for some time, and we're very pleased to finally be making that happen. She's the producer of the HBO documentary Mr. Conservative, Goldwater on Goldwater, which earned well-deserved rave reviews last September on HBO. Mr. Conservative, from the title, was Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, the Republican standard bearer in the election of 1964. The senator, regarded by many as the founder of America's conservative movement, was of particular interest to our guest today, for he was her grandfather. We'd like to thank Cece Goldwater for joining us from her Arizona home. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Cece. Thanks, Doug. I'm glad to be here. You uh, mentioned, Cece, near the start of your film that you grew up but knowing that your grandfather was vilified by some people. But what strikes people as they watch your film is how complimentary so many folks are about Barry Goldwater. And you, you expect that from people who agreed with him politically, but it's people who disagreed with him that remain to this day so utterly respectful of him. Were, were you surprised to discover how much people like Andy Rooney, James Carville, Ben Bradley, uh, they respected and liked your grandfather as a person? You know, I actually was, because, you know, doing this film, as you said, growing up, all I had gotten through my life was, oh, my God, Barry Goldwater's your grandfather? Oh, he would have really put us in big trouble with Vietnam. It constantly got this warmonger kind of a perception of what Barry was as a, as a, a, a nasty villain. And going through the process of doing the film and interviewing these people, I think with the years gone by and people being able to reflect now back on what Barry was saying that he was so prolific, that he was so ahead of his time, that now people on the right and the left, especially on the left now, are actually agreeing with what he said. And, and because the, party, the, the, the Republican Party is so fragmented, um, it's kind of what he predicted would happen to the party. There was one clip you showed that was really illuminating, taken in 1963, showing Barry Goldwater saying, I think that they call me conservative today, but uh, eventually I'll be called a liberal. Yeah, he named a few other people like Thomas Jefferson and himself would be called a liberal. I think he probably felt his thoughts were a lot more on that uh, very the conservative side of not the conservative party that obviously today, but more of the conservative of a constitutionalist. He was very empowered by the Constitution. It was very much of his Bible. It, um, he, it represented everything that he stood for. Well, uh, one thing that's very enjoyable about, about Mr. Conservative is, is how often... I found myself laughing because your grandfather obviously won a lot of people over with his sense of humor and still does so in the film. He wasn't afraid to say things. He just said what he felt. You know, growing up in a territory, you know, wild west Arizona, you know, shoot from the hip, say what you feel, you know, be honest. You know, he didn't suffer fools. I think he always told people what he felt. I, I don't think he really cared even about the consequences of what he said. I think he always just said to himself, as long as I'm honest and true to myself, whatever happens, happens. Well, there are many people quoting him seem to have a twinkle in their eye, and I, well, there's too many examples to mention, but I do want to just get, give at least one. You had Robert McNeil, former NBC newsman, McNeil Lair Report. He noted how your grandfather would be out in the campaign stump and note to people that, you know, referring to how, you know, country clubs wouldn't allow Jews in. He'd say, well, I had a Jewish father and Episcopalian mother. Uh, I'm only half Jewish. Can I play nine holes? <laughs> It's such a great line. Yeah, that was his humor. He was very proud of of his upbringing. He knew, he knew his mother's you know belief in being Episcopal, and that's the way he grew up. And he also knew that his father was from a Jewish family, immigrants from from Poland. So he was aware of both of it. Um, so he 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 really used it to his advantage to help with his personality, especially some of those quirky little comments that he had. 
Well, there's many fascinating uh, moments in the film, I think, that uh, would surprise a lot of folks. For example, your grandfather and John Kennedy were very good friends, dating back to serving in the Senate together. They knew in the early 60s it was quite likely they might be political opponents in 1964. The two of them were seriously, or at least semi-seriously, talking about how, you know what we ought to do? Let's rent a plane. We'll fly around the country in the same airplane, get out, and give dueling remarks. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a remarkable idea. But looking back at those two men, you think that, you know, they just might have done that back then. I think without a doubt they would have done it. Um, I think my grandfather was very enamored with um, John Kennedy, really thought a lot of him, thought he was a wonderful man, felt very strongly about their friendship. They did, um, you know, he's very involved with the Bay of Pigs. And, and, and Ke- President Kennedy would call on him often for, you know, just at kind of the, the right field advice. And they had a very sincere relationship. And I, I, I know without a doubt they would have done that. They would have done an amazing job, and they would have revolutionized the whole way of politicking. And, 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 and what's so ironic about this is about a week ago, I was listening to um, a radio station, and they were talking about how great it would be if McCain and Barack Obama would do the same thing as, as the Goldwater and Kennedy idea, then it would be a very interesting concept. And, and so I guess maybe people are starting to think about things like this. I think it might save a little bit of money, too. <laughs> so evidently the, your documentary is sort of circling that idea out there. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, it would be a wonderful thing. Can you imagine? I mean, think about how much money that they would save and think about how much, you know, how, how honest it could be. You know, it, just, it would just be a really interesting way of campaigning. I think it'd be like the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I think it would be classical. Classical. Barry Goldwater had a lot of different talents. Uh, I can remember his photographs being in Life magazine. He he, uh, helped with your family business, uh, the store in Phoenix. He was a ham radio operator. He was a skilled pilot. And, and of course, we we alluded to earlier, in a way uncommon for people in politics, he spoke his mind. Um, In your documentary, you go on at length about how, really, in some ways, he seems ill-suited to be a politician, precisely because of his habit of saying what he thought. Can you talk about how sort of unpolitical he was in some ways? He never, ever had aspirations to be a politician. Nowadays, politicians have aspirations to be exactly that, a politician. He was running a store. He ran for city council only because there was no city council, and everybody just sat around one day at a bar and said, okay, well, you're in city council, you're in city council, you're in city council, here's our city council. And the next thing you know, there he is, he's in city council, and McFarland's seat came up, and, and McFarland was a senior senator and had a lot of clout in Washington, and my grandfather just decided to roll in, had a lot of charisma, and just landed it. And I think he was never really sure that he was going to get that job, and I think once he got immersed into it, he really, really loved it, but he was never set out to be a politician. He wanted to go to West Point. He wanted to graduate from West Point. He was... He had been in World War II. He used to fly carrier aircraft between India and Burma. And he really was somebody that wanted to stay in that, in that realm. But it, it wasn't what happened. That wasn't his destiny. His destiny was to be a politician. Well, Mr. Conservative takes on uh, the controversy about, uh, about your grandfather with, with, with surprising honesty. Um, you showed some cartoons demonstrating how he made some political errors, some big errors, really, in the 64 campaign. It's discussed how he appealed to his political base, but didn't move to the center, didn't, didn't resort to a lot of political uh, double talk. Um, from a purely political standpoint, that was a dangerous move, and it did cost him rather dearly. The biggest thing in the 64 election was his vote against the civil rights, and it was really about the accommodations clause in the document itself. It wasn't the whole bill. It was just part of it. So, in essence, it was really tragic because you throw the baby out with the bathwater, and it's, it's, 
it wasn't good. I think it was a, it was something that he really wished probably later in life he probably looked back on and, and thought maybe maybe that wasn't the right decision. But he felt very very strongly about constitutional rights and and allowing people to to be able to pick and choose who they want to sell to to. Um, to have in their store, to have in their bar, or to have in their restaurant. That's what he felt that was their constitutional rights. I mean, if you, it, it, just, it was just what he felt, and um, that was about the public accommodations clause, and that's all that he was really against. But they really made a meal out of it, and then they also made him into kind of a, a terror guy where they you know, had the Daisy commercial, and, and there she was pulling the pedals off, and a and, and nuclear bomb goes off, and, and all of a sudden you, know, you believe that Barry Goldwater is going to just kill everybody. And it was just so far from the truth. Let's, let's talk about that ad. It's considered perhaps the most famous political ad uh, ever shown. I was shocked to realize it only apparently aired once because I'm, sh- I'm positive I saw it back in 1964. It certainly was associating your grandfather with being a little bit, say, loose with the nuclear trigger. And politically, it was, it was very effective and, and sort of opened the door to a lot of the attack politics we've, co- we've sort of gotten used to over the years. You started the documentary with that. It obviously was, it made a great impression on you. How, how do you react to that personally? I think what I was trying to point out in the beginning of the film was this was the advent of electronic dirt. And now it's, it's just part of the political system. Uh, politicians, when they do commercials, are nasty and mean. They don't even talk about the way they feel. All they do is sit there and put down their opponent. So we never really know who they are because they're too busy, you know, slapping the other guy down so fast. I mean, instead of talking about really what they're going to do to change things. And that was the advent of the whole concept of doing that, which was the Daisy commercial. They didn't mention Goldwater. All they did was just do images and countdowns and, you know, you know these are the stakes. So if you don't you know, vote for Johnson, and if you don't vote for Johnson, then those are the stakes, and bye-bye, that's, you're gone. It was a shocker, and it ran once, and my grandfather called and had it removed, and they were nice enough to have it removed, which is great. They probably wouldn't do something like that now. Who knows? But it was really nasty and awful, and it was very hurtful. He was, he was very hurt by it because it was an assassination on his character. Well, looking back at 1964, Johnson uh, was, of course, painting your grandfather as a, as a hawk, as a war hawk. He was admittedly uh, hawkish in, in dealing with uh, the communist um, regimes of the USSR, Vietnam, etc. You had a very interesting quote from John McCain. He succeeded your grandfather as Arizona senator. After being told by your grandfather that McCain would never have served seven years in the Vietnamese prison camp if he'd been elected, he joked back, uh, no, Barry, it would have been a Chinese prison camp. Uh, Is there a sense, looking back, that your grandfather ever concluded that expanding that war in Vietnam was, in retrospect, perhaps the wrong thing to have done? Oh, absolutely. You know, his tactic with anything, I think even right now with Iraq, he'd probably be going, you know, what the heck? I mean... I, I, his his whole his whole attitude was get in there, go aggressive, be fast, get in there and get out of there and be done with it. I mean, you don't go in trickling in, trickling in, trickling in like we did with Vietnam, and over the years you lose hundreds of thousands of of young boys and women, and it's just I think his his tactic was completely different. And I looking back on you know LBJ, I I think he probably realized that as well as well as Nixon did at the very end. So. Yeah, I mean, Barry had a very aggressive way of doing things. He was in the military. He knew he knew it. He knew combat. He knew what it was about. He knew structure and he knew strategy. And he was very, very good at it. And he was a general. And he knew this stuff. He wasn't going to play games. He was going to go in there and, and make it happen or, and get out of there. 
We're speaking with Cece Goldwater about her grandfather, Senator Barry Goldwater, and the HBO documentary, Mr. Conservative. Cece had some really colorful quotes in the documentary. James Carville said that if, if Ronald Reagan was the conservative savior, then Barry Goldwater played John the Baptist, which I thought was pretty good. But uh, yeah. Ronald Reagan really got his start in the 64 campaign. Can we talk about that? He did. He, there was a speech that came in, and it was, um, it was called The Speech, and it was written, and it was supposed to be delivered by my grandfather. And this was before he ended up doing his famous speech. Um, but the speech came in, and my grandfather read it and read it and read it, and then just said, you know what, this, this needs to be read by an actor. And the next thing you know, they get, you know, this B actor, you know, Ronald Reagan, and he reads it. He reads it perfectly, and it's powerful, and it's great. And then my grandfather went on to, to do his extremism speech, which was very, very shocking and very powerful, but very, very poetically true today. We should remind people of that quote, which, if I may take a stab at it, is extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And how true is that right now? Pretty ironic, you know. We, uh, and being moderate is not, not what we need to be in this society right now. I don't think that we have these extremist, wild, crazy people in the Middle East right now being really moderate. I think they're being a little extreme. Well, let's talk a little bit about the origins of the conservative movement as, as we talk about it. Uh, Ronald Reagan owes a great deal obviously, to Barry Goldwater. Uh, your film shows clearly how politically the Republican Party linked itself to Christian conservatives and the social agenda in the 70s, but this sort of thing did not sit well with, uh, with your grandfather, who had some unkind things to say about Jerry Falwell. Can you talk about that? Ah, you know, he, Jerry wasn't one of his favorite people. <laughs> he had a real opinion about it. He, first of all, he thought that, that religion has no place in politics. It is not part of the agenda. It's not part of what we, we should have as people in Washington deciding on whether we should have prayer in school, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that he was very outspoken against Jerry Farwell and, and really felt that Jerry should keep his mouth shut and, and tried to say that in a very tactful way, but my grandfather's tact and diplomacy were never necessarily um, uh, <laughs> without a little bit of a... <laughs> Without a little bit of a, uh, something that would be, that would be definitely uh, a great quote for the news. <laughs> I think he wanted to kick Jerry Farwell in the ass. I think that's really what he wanted to do. Well, I, I, again, I want to recommend everyone who's listening to us to make sure that, uh, that they, they take in this documentary, which, which CC is now becoming available in universities. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, actually, the film is um, now but, um, just being released into universities through Zeitgeist Films out of New York. They are the uh, distributor, and it goes into libraries and universities, high schools, and also to academic, uh, military uh, institutions, et cetera. And then in late April, the, my grandfather's book from 1960, The Conscience of the Conservative, is being re-released through Princeton University Press with a new forward being written by George Will and an afterward being written by Bobby Kennedy, Jr., so it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's going to be really fun. This, this year's going to be fun. Well, again, we, get, we, give, it a, we give it the highest endorsement. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank you. A great strength of your documentary, Cece, the numerous contributions that are made by your family members. Uh, and, and if no one else has thanked them on behalf of the public, I'd like to do so for the, the personal touches that really round out the film. Oh, I'm glad you liked it, and I hope everybody that hears this gets a chance to watch it. I think HBO will air it occasionally. Um, they do have the, you know, they do air it occasionally now, but it will be out on DVD at the end of um, at the end of summer, like probably at the end of July. Then you can go buy it at DVD. Well, Chris, you've been very motivated to round out people's perceptions of of your grandfather. Um, I want to talk about a really touching moment in the film where you, where you talk to your mother 
about it. She elected when to, to get an abortion when she was 20. She was not ready to have children at that point. And her mother, your grandmother, had started Planned Parenthood in Arizona. Right. Your grandfather was quite supportive of her decision. Uh, this is not something we associate with today's conservatives, and it really shows how libertarian I think he was. Yeah, that was, you know, that was a very touchy moment because my mom, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about something like that, and that was, you know, my mom was very young at that point, and, you know, having, ha- having an abortion at, at, when she was that age was very, very risky and very, very dangerous, and she really took her life in her hands by having one, but she knew in her heart that she wanted to be finish her degree, she wanted to get educated, she wanted to make sure she had that, she wanted to go on and have children, and she was getting married, and it was just that's just what she, her decision was, but it was her decision, and that's what my grandfather was all about. It was her decision to choose. It's a woman's right to choose. It, it is not somebody else, uh, some man telling you, yes, you have to do this or whatever. It's, it, it's a woman's right to choose whether they're going to take care of this child or not. Because who knows? I mean, the guy might blow out of your life, and you're ended up with a child. Sure. At the end of the documentary, I think Barry Goldwater's maverick status leaves people still trying to explain really how independent he did think on, on some issues. I think one of the most interesting quotes you have is, is your grandfather referring to Thomas Jefferson's idea of the separation of church and state. And he's noting, and this is in the early 80s, that, that quote, the religious right scares the hell out of me. They have no place in politics, end quote, which is certainly not a mainstream Republican thought today. He also, uh, in, in, in the, later in life, opposed restrictions on gays in the military. I think a lot of this stuff would surprise people who see to see your film. It's very educational, and, and the other thing that's interesting is that when you see the film, you realize what, what role he played, an instrumental role in Watergate. And um, that was very, very, that was a very troubling time for America. We had a president that was lying to us. We had um, a, a Congress and a Senate that was just not knowing what to do and really, really just wanting to get the president out of there. And without having to impeach him, you know, was trying to just kind of slowly cork him to get out of, you know, the office. And my grandfather had to do a lot of that. And it was something that a lot of people don't realize, that he had an incredibly important role in that. Yeah, I think it was John Dean called him the unsung hero of, of Watergate. And, uh, and Ben Bradley was talking about how people were looking for the Post, their coverage. And your grandfather was frankly speaking to Ben Bradley and also saying, you can't publish any of this because knowing how stubborn Nixon was, if you do, he's going to stay in office just to spite everybody. Yeah, he was afraid he'd, he'd be, you know, having drinks with Ben or doing something or having dinner with Ben and tell him what was going on. And, and he just said, look, but you can't, you know, you can't write anything about this. If you write something about it, he's not going to leave. I mean, he's, he's so stubborn, he's not going to leave. And so luckily they kept it really under wraps. And then the minute that they were able to do something, the Washington Post came out with it. And that was the cover of the Washington Post. Well, in the end, uh, Walter Cronkite said he thought that, you know, Barry would be, you know, turning over in his grave to hear him say it, but he said he thought he was a liberal. Uh, White House correspondent Helen Thomas agreed with that assessment. Uh, George Will argued, I thought somewhat unconvincingly that the national political conversation had moved off of topics that, that Barry Goldwater uh, would, in, would embrace as conservatism. He was a complicated guy. In the end, CC, how do you really define his, his convictions? I think the main thing about Barry Goldwater as a, as a person, personally, he was a, a, a wonderful, charming man that had a tremendous amount of charisma, was very interested in everything from gadgets to flying to photography, as all the things that you mentioned. Um, as a politician, he was very complicated. He, he spoke the truth. He spoke his word. He felt that honesty was the, the only way he believed um, that was 
accurate. He could not stand people that lied to him. He felt that, you know, politics was a place that, you know, was an honor to be in. He, was, he felt honored to be a senator. He felt honored to, to be, you know, in, in that position for as long as he, he was. He felt religion had no place in politics. He felt that, that, that women should have the right to choose, that gays should be in the military. I mean, you don't have to be straight to shoot straight. And I think that that is one thing that, that, that Barry was, you know, Barry was just very true. He was very true. And you never, you never questioned where he stood. You, don't, you, you always knew exactly where he was. And, and he, was a, he was a right-on guy. He was a, he, it, you know, they broke the mold. And unfortunately, I don't, I, you know, it'd be great to see somebody else come out like Barry Goldwater. I don't, I don't think, Cece, we will see the likes of him again anytime soon. Final, final comment, I think, inspiration. We are a university uh, radio station. I know we have a lot of uh, students that listen in. I was so impressed, and I didn't really catch this the first two times I saw the, the documentary. It took the third time to see it, was that he took his skill as a filmmaker. He was very good with a camera. He took boats down the Colorado River, wooden boats, back when, you know, you, prior to the era of the rubber raft, filmed the whole thing, went around the state, showed this, this great adventure to people and really made himself a household name, which really enabled him to jump from the Phoenix City Council to the United States Senate. So I think that should inspire a lot of young people out there. You know, it, that that movie was uh, was done before Glen Canyon Dam was built, which is um, which is a big dam there, and and, and it, so the water was completely different, much more rough. And you know, the boats would you know they get to this rock cluster, and they would have to pick the boats up and all the boats and drag them all over, completely over. A rock cluster, and the rock clusters could be were pretty big, and then they put them back in the water, and they'd float down again, and they were filming the whole thing, and it was just an amazing piece of footage that I found, and it was something that I found in the in my uncle Mike's house in a closet on the floor behind a bunch of stuff. So it was it, it, this this making this film was a very interesting process because of the archival film footage and family fo- film footage. I mean, there's a lot of home home movies, and it's it's just loaded with really interesting things. Watching your grandfather pick up the trombone and start to play it on the whole movie still cracks me up. It's just... And he played it. He played the trombone. <laughs> well, he played it. Bo- he played the trombone, and he also played his hand like a trombone. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I don't think the likes of him will uh, will come along anytime soon. It's been a pleasure to talk about him, and again, I want to recommend to all of our listeners they do take in your your excellent documentary, CC. Oh, good. I'm glad. I hope I hope everybody you know gets a chance to see it and maybe. You know, if it's available at the library, check it out. Or if it's part of the political studies or whatever, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be great. And then the book will come out, and it's definitely a reread. It's a, it's a great it's a great book. It's something that when you read it, you go, "Wow, this is so important for today." And maybe we should uh, maybe we just got to start turning everything around and start looking at things differently. And CC, for those who would like more information on this, what website can they go to? Mr. No Dot, Mr. Conservative, Goldwater and Goldwater dot com. Cece, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. The HBO documentary is titled Mr. Conservative, Goldwater on Goldwater. We've been speaking with the film's executive producer, Cece Goldwater. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a break.
We're back. We would like to note at this point uh, the passing of uh, a legend of American writing, Art Buckwald. The Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist had made a career out of skewering Washington's elite and in 1986 was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Buckwald made a name for himself as an expatriate writing in Paris. He told Vanity Fair magazine in July that he was happiest when he was working for the New York Herald Tribune from 1948 to 1962. He said, I owned Paris. I had a readership there that I would have never had in the United States. We regret that although we had carefully filed away some of the great Buckwald columns, uh, at least ones that we thought were great, we were unable to find them for this broadcast. So some of those excerpts will have to wait for a future program, but uh, he did have some moments where we do plan to share some of those with you. And in our obituary section, we need to note the passing of someone we know touched the lives of virtually everyone listening. Momofuko Ando passed away in Osaka, Japan last week at age 96. Now, how can we be certain that Momofuko Ando touched each and every one of you? Well, in 1958, after months of trial and error experimentation on noodles, Ando perfected a flash frying method and thus invented the first pre-cooked instant noodle, which he marketed as chicken ramen. It's better known to us by its descendants, Top Ramen. This made Momofuku Ando a very rich man and changed the dining habits of college students everywhere. And we'd like to note that although they did, uh, they did come out with the Oscar nominees uh, yesterday, we were much more intrigued by the annual release of the Razzie nominations. The surprise here was that according to Razzie's founder, John Wilson, that all-time Razzie's champ Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa was not nominated this year. Sly Stallone, who has 30 Razzie nominations and 10 wins to his credit, surprised many skeptics by delivering a sequel that was well-received by audiences and earned better-than-expected reviews. Said John Wilson, at the first of the year, you could not have convinced me that it wasn't going to be a Razzie contender. I'd like to say publicly that Stallone has made a good movie. And uh, three items from the miscellaneous file would start with um, the first, that the U.S. is apparently going to try again to produce dollar coins. The Sacagawea dollar is now being written off as a failure, although maybe not quite as spectacular a failure as the Susan B. Anthony dollar, a failure nonetheless. So what the U.S. Mint is going to do is put the president's pictures on these new dollar coins and hope for the best. And we predict here in Radio Parallax that the Treasury Department will again show cowardice when it comes to doing the obvious, that is, removing the U.S. dollar bill from circulation. When the Europeans started over with the euro, they arranged it so they would not have small bills of very little value. Over on the continent, uh, the smallest bill you can have is the five euro note, worth about six bucks. We've suggested before, and we will now suggest again, that the smallest bill in circulation should be the $2 bill, and there should be $1 coins. 
But we feel fairly confident the Treasury Department will not take our advice. They will issue these new coins. They will not get used. And we will all be that much poorer for it. In some news from space, contrary to international treaties and common sense, the Pentagon's been talking like it owns the uh, orbital space around the Earth to put military weapons in. Well, the Chinese apparently didn't agree. And last week, they used a ground-based missile to hit and destroy one of its own aging satellites 500 miles up in space. The Bush administration apparently thought it could announce that we now own space and that we were going to put weapons up there and no one else would be allowed to and expected, I guess, the rest of the world to just kind of go, oh, okay. But it doesn't appear as though it's going that way. Uh, On a serious note, the militarization of space, such as being proposed by various parties at this point, is just, it's, it's a catastrophe for all of us. And traces right back to the Bush administration's uh, deciding that the anti-ballistic missile treaty, going back to the Nixon years, would simply now uh, be ignored. It didn't appear to be a very good idea to us at the time, and it looks even dumber now. And how about this for dumb? In the wake of newly elected U.S. Representative Keith Ellison of Minnesota being sworn into office on a Koran once owned by Thomas Jefferson... Lunatic Fringe radio host Dennis Prager said, quote, America is interested in only one book, the Bible, and warned that Ellison's use of the Koran would, quote, embolden Islamic extremists, unquote. The American Family Association called for a law requiring the use of Bibles at swearing-in ceremonies. Wrote Beverly Schlegel in the Roanoke, Virginia Times, the Koran does not accept the separation of church and state and expressly demands that Ellison, quote, wage jihad and create certain political, not religious institutions, such as Sharia law, unquote. These beliefs are in direct opposition to the freedoms we enjoy in the U.S. We think some folks have been misinformed. The American concept of religious freedom and a a separation of church and state goes back to Thomas Jefferson, not the Bible. If you think you know in a spot in the Bible where it specifically outlines the concept of the separation of church and state, please send us an email at info at Radio Parallax and we'll read it on the air and send you a t-shirt. We don't think you can do it. All right, this item caught my eye from uh, The Week magazine and I wasn't sure what to make of it, but I think I need to report it to you as it was written. Gwyneth Paltrow came under fire last week when she told a Portuguese newspaper that she doesn't feel American. The British are much more intelligent and civilized than the Americans, Paltrow said. They don't talk about work and money. They talk about interesting things at dinner. After fans complained, the actress said her remarks in Spanish were misconstrued. I need to go back to seventh grade Spanish, she said. Now, what's puzzling about this is that last time I checked, Portuguese newspapers do not publish in Spanish. Now, there's a couple possibilities here. Uh, Maybe she was trying her hand at Portuguese. Maybe she was speaking Spanish and the Portuguese translators didn't get it right. Um, I don't know. Personally, I think she should have stuck by her guns. But seriously, folks, when we talk about uh, the Portuguese language and mistranslations, we inevitably must come to a subject I've been meaning to get to on this program for quite some time, and today is the day. The Portuguese writer Pedro Carolino produced one of the most remarkable books ever written. It appeared in Paris in 1851. Its title, 
The new guide of the conversation in Portuguese and English only hints at its extraordinary content. Little is known about Mr. Carolino, but his deathless work is believed to be a collaboration with José de Fonseca, the respected author of a Portuguese-French phrase book which was published in 1836. Carolino set out with the reasonable goal of creating a Portuguese-English phrase book. There was one problem, however. Carolino did not know a word of English. Furthermore, he did not possess an English-Portuguese dictionary. Undaunted, Pedro Carolino used Portuguese-French and French-English dictionaries in series through which he dragged his translations. <laughs> the literal transformation from Portuguese, a language Carolino spoke, to French, over which he had only a rudimentary grasp, into English, with which he had no familiarity, surely accounts for the results obtained. Now, some mishaps are to be expected in any pioneering work, but nothing quite prepares the reader, however, for the surreal and hilarious content of The New Guide. It turned out, upon being published, this book was so popular it ran through something like 15 printings. And in fact, it is revived every so often and has been currently, and I believe is available in bookstores near you or on the web, under its current title, English as She is Spoke. And I think we must share with you some of the content to be found within its pages. The book opens with a dedication. We expect then who the little book, for the care what we wrote him, and for her typographical correction, that may be worth the acceptation of the studious person, and especially of the youth, at which we dedicate him particularly. In the preface, Carolino declares his work clean of gallicisms, and despoiled phrases. He decries the corelessness of his rivals. The author kicked off the book with familiar phrases which the Portuguese holiday maker might find useful. Among these are this hat go well. Exculpate me by your brothers. She make the prude. I shall not tell you then two woods he laughs at my nose, and take that boy and whip him too much. The vocabulary section reveals that in the world of Pedro Carolino, people have some novel jobs, among them harbinger and parapet. They suffer from many ailments, such as the vomitory, a bald, and an ugly. Contained in his comprehensive list of popular fish include the Hedgehog, Snail, and Wolf. Carolino's genius was revealed in his familiar dialogues, which ensure, among other things, that his readers may discuss any aspect of the weather, having rehearsed such observations as, There is some foggy, the sun rise on, and it is light moons. Carolino provided many useful dialogues in the book, including, For to wish the good morning, and for to visit a sick. But he really outdid himself in Dialogue 18, however, titled, For to Ride a Horse, which proceeds as follows. Here is a horse who have bad looks. Give me another. I will not that. He not sal no to march. He is Percy. He is foundered. 
Don't you are ashamed to give me a jade as like? He is unshoed. He is with nails up. In the section titled Anecdotes, Carolina offered the following, guaranteed to enthrall any listener. One eye was laid against a man which had good eyes, that he saw better than him. The party was accepted. I had gain over said the one-eyed. Why, I see you two eyes, and you not look me who won? Yes, it is as inspiring as we find that. We think it's difficult to top what the author managed in a section titled Idiotisms and Proverbs. Included among the idiotisms were nothing some money, nothing of Swiss. <laughs> and, of course, the proverb, a take is better than two you shall have. And the stone as roll, not heap up, not foam. And, of course, the well-known expression, the dog then bark, not bite. Not to mention that old classic, who that be too washed, too many soaped, and the shirts put through the buck. History does not record whether José de Fonseca died of shame, but we do know that he passed away in 1866, 30 years after his book inspired Pedro Carolino. We also know that his name was removed after the first edition of this so-called collaboration. Mark Twain became a fan of Carolino, going so far as to publish a facsimile of the original volume. Twain said, in this world of uncertainty, there is one thing left which might be pretty, pretty confidently set down as a certainty. This celebrated little phrase book will never die while the English language lasts. We note in closing that the results of Pedro Carolino's efforts to create a Portuguese-English phrase book undeniably yielded language of singular originality. One is hard-pressed to find anything in standard English to equal the vividness of the Carolino idiotism to crouch a marmoset. Anyway, there's so much more in an actual copy of English as she had spoke that we, uh, we just can't recommend this linguistic train wreck uh, highly enough. We have to note in, in closing that, uh, that English as she has spoke is a classic, but uh, someone on the web took the time to take some original Portuguese and compare the Pedro Carolino translations to that which you get when you apply the Babelfish program. We'll give you just one example. In the original Portuguese, Este lago parece-me bem picoso. Vamos pescar para nos divertimos. Now, a proper Portuguese translation would render something like this. This lake looks full of fish to me. Let's have some fun fishing. In English as she has spoke, however, Pedro Carolino rendered it as, That pond, it seems me many multiplied of fishes. Let us amuse rather to the fishing. But personally, I think that compares rather favorably to the following Babelfish translation. This lake seems me well picoso. We go to fish, stops in amusing them. Pedro Carolino, Babelfish. You make the call.
That's it for the program. We want to put a very special thanks out there for CC Goldwater for speaking with us from her home in Arizona. We'll say it one last time. Her documentary, Mr. Conservative, Goldwater on Goldwater, is about as good a political documentary as you're going to find anywhere. We recommend it to you highly. And on next week's program, we'll be joined by the legendary American humorist P.J. O'Rourke, the best-selling author of 12 books. You've no doubt seen his magazine writing in such diverse publications as The Weekly Standard, House and Garden, The New York Times Book Review, Rolling Stone, and The Atlantic Monthly. We like to think of him as the author of the funniest thing this correspondent has ever read. The classic 1964 high school yearbook parody, which P.J. and the late Doug Kenny created while they worked at the National Lampoon magazine. When I say the funniest thing I ever read, I honestly mean it literally. We'll see you next week at the same time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.